Welcome to another podcast from South Mims University, or South Mims U as we like to be called. And today it comes from the Obfuscation Department, where I am talking to Dr. Mostyn Wax. He is one of the founders of this faculty, Dr. Wax. Hello. Dr. Wax, can I just say it was quite hard to find your department I mean, it's very close to the marketing department, and but it's quite poorly signposted. And the sign is in very small lettering. Exactly so. This is to remind the students of obfuscation what they are about. You will also find any maps of the department extremely badly designed and hard to follow. We need to promote obfuscation wherever we can. Obfuscation is nothing new, is it? I mean... Kafka wrote about it, and uh, there was that TV series, um, Yes Minister, wasn't there? Yes, yes, it's been with us for a very long time. Dickens wrote about it as well. We are the only university department to actually study it as a separate discipline, though. Yes, but I must say, I am surprised to find an entire department dedicated to obfuscation. I mean, back in my day, universities taught traditional subjects like maths physics, English and so on. With respect, that is all extremely old hat. The new generations of universities teach subjects like business studies, accountancy, marketing, management and so on. So a separate discipline of obfuscation was bound to follow eventually as a sort of subsection of marketing. But we are big enough to have our own faculty now. So I suppose we need to start by making sure our listeners know exactly what obfuscation is. Dictionary definition is the action of making something unclear or unintelligible. And would you agree with that definition? Very much so. As I said, we have links to the Faculty of Marketing as that is where our skills are most appreciated. We also have strong links with technology and, of course, computer science. So that the listeners get a better idea of your remit, what would you say was your greatest day-to-day influence on us? Uh, Where would we have felt your presence the most? Call centres, without a doubt. And how on earth does that work? Back in the day, as they say, you would just phone up a company, someone would answer, and they would put you through to whoever you needed to talk to. Obviously, this caused companies no end of problems, as they would have to deal with complaints straight away... They'd employ a lot of people to answer the phone, so on and so on. We came up with the idea of pressing different buttons on your phone to put you through to different departments and to make you wait for a long time for your call to be answered. Then you would be passed from department to department, the hope being, obviously, for the caller to lose the will to live and to give up. What about those, uh, we are receiving unusually high levels of calls or... Uh, Your call means a lot to us, and so on. Yes, well, we came up with those messages. Clearly, if your call really did mean a lot to them, they would simply employ more people to answer the phones, but that would impact profits. We came up with all of that. Marketing people were very impressed. Our activities grew and grew. We influence a remarkable number of disciplines now. (laughs) You do seem to be everywhere. (laughs) But what's this I see in my notes about uh, the instructions that come with products? What's that? Yes. Now, with increasing globalisation, this side of things is really taking off. I've got an example here, fortuitously. What do you think of this? Oh, wow. Um, That looks amazing. Well, what do you think it is? Well, I'm not sure. It's some kind of 
sound system? No, no, no. It's a toaster. A toaster? Are you sure? Yeah. It's been carefully designed in China to appeal to people who like to think of themselves as, I don't know, trendy, tech-savvy, they like a lot of flashing lights and dials and switches and all that. But where do you put the bread? You have to set the switch timer thing there before the flap opens there and you put the bread in there. I'm sure it makes lovely toast. No, I wouldn't go near it. I used one I got from Woolworths years ago before they went bust. Still works. So how much does this one cost? £250. For a toaster? Does it sell? Very well, especially in the more high-end stores. What did Barnum say? There's a sucker born every minute. Okay, so where do you come in? Have a look at the instructions. Right, there's uh, okay, French. That's all the usuals. Uh, wait a minute. Arabic, yeah. German. That's Spanish. That's Yeah, that's Spanish. Where's the English? It is there. Oh, right. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, it would be nice if it was in alphabetical order or something. Wouldn't it? That's us, you see. There's the English at the end. Yeah. Yeah, OK. Um, right. But it's really, really hard to read. I mean, these Chinese ought to have... <laughs> ought to learn some English. <laughs> it's almost indecipherable. It's not the Chinese. A lot of Chinese write English better than we do. We did that. You wrote these instructions? Yes. We have some Chinese interns who do these. They're completely fluent in English, of course, uh, and they write them badly deliberately. But when they do, when they do these here, they, they give the instructions a sort of ring of truth, which English copywriters just can't quite touch. So these appalling instructions were written here in England, in this very department? Absolutely. Why? Built-in obsolescence. We are very good in that area. Think about it. A toaster is a very simple device. A kid could make one out of Meccano. So, how can you make huge profits out of it? We'll give it a lot of knobs and switches like this. You're catching on. And of course, the more complicated it is, the more there is that can go wrong. That will go wrong. So, if the instructions are indecipherable, there's a very strong chance that the sort of person who would be attracted to something like this will do the wrong thing when trying to fix it. They'll break it and invalidate the guarantee. And does that work? It works very well. OK, I'm still trying to get my head around this, but what has been the greatest development for obfuscation? The thing that's helped you achieve your goals? The computer and the internet revolution, without a doubt. Can you explain? Certainly. The best way to understand is to look at it this way. Guess what the worst situation for obfuscation is? Please, just tell me. OK. Somebody walks walks to a shop. They see something they like in the window. It's a well-made product that works. It carries a guarantee. They pay for it in cash and walk out with it. What's so bad about that? Everything. Only one opportunity for profit and no portals. I love that word, portals. We came up with that. For profit-generating obfuscation. Here is our ideal scenario. Some poor soul drives to the shops. They have to park. Now, most road signs and parking instructions pass through our hands. People need to read them quickly as they are in a car and often stressed. So, they are consequently made as confusing as possible by us and there are large fines for people who transgress the rules. 
Sometimes people are made to pay for parking through their phones with all the opportunities for mistakes, malfunction, hacking and system collapse that that offers. Most people just can't be bothered to rectify mistakes and revenues have gone through the roof. I can see all that, but let's, let's face it, the high street is dying. Most people don't go to the shops, probably for the reasons that you've outlined. Most people go online nowadays. I know, perfect opportunities for obfuscation. The whole internet ethos is made for obfuscation. Well, I thought computers were supposed to make things simpler and clearer. <laughs> Please. The computerised life is much more complicated than before, with opportunities for obfuscation everywhere. That's why we've come into our own and we have our own department. Uh, an example? Where to begin? Probably indecipherable online instructions, stuff that appears to be written by geeks that the layman just can't understand. <laughs> I've come across loads of those. Well, yes, you would have. But they are not written by geeks. They are written by our people. Some of whom, it is true, are geeks. But they are specially trained geeks. But why? I mean, what's the point? Well, take buying online. It's extremely easy to buy the wrong thing. There are stories of people going online to buy some pins or something and ended up buying a yacht. There is a theory that that is because, again, these sites are designed by geeks for geeks and that laymen can't understand them. That is sort of believable. It is, but it's wrong. Retailers will again use our geeks, specially trained geeks from our department, to use their skills to make these sites as complicated as possible. Thus more mistakes. Thus more profit. Doesn't just happen by accident. And this also applies to computer software as well. Go on. The more confused the punter is, the more money they will spend on equipment that they don't need. The best example is someone buying a new computer simply because they don't understand something that came up online on their old computer. And then they think there's something wrong with it. Is there much of that? More than you think. People are terrified admitting that they don't understand technology. It makes them look out of date. And of course the tech firms take advantage hoover up their money and we get a large percentage. Don't you feel bad about all that? Absolutely not. It all helps the economy. We work in marketing. The more computers are sold, the better. People think they need to replace their laptops every two years. Complete drivel. Mine still works seven years after I bought it. But we came up with the idea that they have to be replaced. <laughs> Built-in obsolescence. That very thing. Well, a development of it. it. It still ended up with us. Another simple example. There's a large section of the um, the, uh, the the older sector of society that still listens to the radio. And probably one station on the radio 24-7. This station being the state broadcast spoken non-music radio. That's all they want. They don't want to change stations. So there's a case for making a radio is perpetually tuned to that one station. It would be a very popular item, it would avoid confusion, and would sell very well at a very reasonable price. In fact, it would be cheap. So, did they make it? Obviously not. There was a move to do it, but we blocked it, put in several legal obstacles, and wound it up in prevarication, something we're very good at. And why did you do that? It would set a precedent. It's far too simple. In itself, it would not really cause us any problems. We're not interested in people who listen to the radio. They are too old and too poor to be of any interest to us. But if that idea were to spread, 
the idea that technology could be simple, the repercussions, the repercussions. It could even filter down, or rather up, to smart TVs and other smart devices, which are an absolute boon for malfunction, confusion, incompatibility, and obfuscation, and the consequent high, huge profits. Do you have anything to do with terms and conditions? You know, the small print. No, no, they are way too easy. We feel it's beneath us. We leave it to lawyers and such like. It's just a list. No one ever reads them. We are much more high profile in our work. The fact that no one knows we're there just makes it, I don't know, more interesting. Now, I can't help noticing uh, that you've got a... A London underground map on the wall. What, what, what's it doing well, That's there? something we're working on. Well, isn't it really good already? Uh, oh, wait a minute. I can see what's coming. Exactly. It is. It's far too good. It does its job extremely well, effectively and clearly at no cost. People can use it easily. It's a fabulous piece of design, our nemesis. So what are you going to do about it? The plan is to replace it with a kind of wall app which can be accessed through your smartphone. It will show you exactly the way to go, maybe with the voice of a celebrity telling you, a bit like a sat-nav, and obviously there will be advertising opportunities as well. But can't people already use their phones for that? I mean, like you said, the sat-nav or Google Maps and stuff like that. Yes, of course, but these will be big and shiny with bells and whistles and music videos and advertising and people will have to pay to use them. We have done a couple of straw polls and I promise you they will be very popular and they will be used. A lot. And what about the old maps? We wanted to get rid of them, but we were told we could not. Apparently they will be needed by the poor and the old again. But as the poor and the old don't really come into our remit, that doesn't matter. <laughs> you really don't like the poor and the old, do you? It's not a personal thing. It's just that they are tech-averse and they like things to be simple, so it's very hard to squeeze money out of them. Of course, the great thing is that they're dying off. That's not very politically correct, is it? problem with them is that they can remember life before computers, how simple and easy it was. For example, a cash till in a shop. You didn't have to plug it in. Apparently you just put in the amount, pressed a switch, it opened up and you put the money in. Actual money, not a card. I mean, that's just too easy. Could you really do that then? Yeah. Before our time, of course, but once the old are gone, the younger folk will not know that it was ever possible. And we will have gotten them exactly where we want them. And, of course, paying for the privilege. You really are everywhere, aren't you? We like to feel we make a contribution. You're in, in the tube, I mean the underground. Uh, are you in the overground as well? Yes, yes. Our influence is there too, and we like to think in a very fundamental way. We were instrumental in the privatisation of the railways. You were? How? Under British railways, you had one company running the railway system of the entire country. Those two dreaded words, simple, easy. So... When the idea for privatisation came up, we obviously lobbied to support it. This was years ago when we were just part of marketing, but the principles of obfuscation were already being hammered out. But, but weren't British railways terrible as... I don't know. That's not the point. We were looking at it from the obfuscation point of view. We thought the opportunities for obfuscation would be huge with railway privatisation. And of course we were right. 
Lots of different companies where there used to be one. Perfect for us. Just for a start, the amount of different fares to go to the same place are, well, I think the word might be thrilling, certainly stimulating for us. That was all you? No, 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 no. It was years ago and we were just part of it. But we are often consulted over fares now. They try to get us interested in timetables, but there's not really an intellectual challenge there. I mean, I had seen all these things before, of course, and but I'd never realised they were the result of one... Uh... Discipline, viewpoint, lobby group. Philosophy. A revenue-generating philosophy. Vital for the economy. Just imagine the economy as an engine. We are the oil that lubricates it. Well, Dr Wax, words fail me, but it's been a privilege. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for listening, and please subscribe to some more intellectually stimulating podcasts, which are, I'm sorry, Dr. Wax, very easy to download and very easy to find. So please don't do any work on our website. Thank you very much. (laughs) 